not terribly long ago. I was visiting a friend out of town on an early morning run through a neighborhood, enjoying my exercise when all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I saw him. A member of that breed of dogs, some of you will know it, that owners of this dog say, well, I know the reputation of this breed, but our little, and it's always like chainsaw, uh, Hitler, Stalin, uh, Satan, our little Satan, not like the rest of that particular breed. I saw him out of the corner of my eye, and he was heading straight at me. Running faster and faster, my heart beating faster and faster, palms sweating, I realize good things are not about to happen. I can hear him now. I see his teeth, his jowls uh, going back and forth as he runs faster and faster, saliva spraying. Uh, I can hear him. He is ready for his magic moment. I know this is going to be the end. I look down and he is about this far away from my leg. And I'm going to tell you the rest of the story in just a few minutes. <laughs> in Isaiah 64 in verse 1, we read this cry. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. This is not only the great cry of Isaiah, written over a period of hundreds of years. I argue this is the great human cry of the whole of Scripture. In fact, this is the cry of human history. This is the great cry that we wake up each morning with in our hearts and on our minds. It is the great cry that calls us together in spiritual community. Oh God, the monster of this world is bearing down on me. Do something. Bust open the heavens and come down. This is the definitive human cry. And it echoes through all generations. We hear this cry in Mark chapter 10. A man comes up to Jesus and the text says that he falls down in the dirt. He's on his knees. He is desperate. Jesus, he pleads, tell me how I might inherit eternal life. I don't think that we should read this simply as how is it that I get into heaven one day. I think it's much deeper, much broader. He's saying to Jesus, oh, my life is feeling much more like death. What is the secret to life? Oh, could you bust open the heavens and have a word for me? And Jesus says to him, oh, why do you call me a good teacher? Only God is good. It's as if, as if Jesus has a tongue in cheek. Oh, you call me good? Only God is good. Ah, the very presence of God is standing before you. And then Jesus says to the man, follow me. Now, while this is an expected human question, the great universal human query, it is not the person we would expect to be in the dirt asking Jesus for help. 
In fact, we learn from the narratives of four things about this man. First, he is experiencing economic security. He is financially wealthy. And we can appreciate this. For even in our day, we covet financial security, the benefits of material possessions. This man is wealthy, but all of that wealth, he's in the dirt begging for life. We also discovered that he's young. That is, he has health. He is in good shape. Again, something that we recognize in our own culture, our worship of young. Now, it's interesting, we spend our early years, I have an eight-year-old and a 13-year-old, and they are constantly talking about getting older. They can't wait for their next birthday. They are anticipating the privileges that come when they get a little bit older. They are constantly consumed, the track of their lives, what comes next as I get older. And then it's like the one weekend where we're the right age, we miss it, no one tells us. Because then for the rest of our lives, we talk about, oh, I wish I were younger. I wish I were still in my 20s, still in my 30s, still in my 40s, still in my 50s. And we actually love youth so much that we offer it as a compliment. When a man turns 60 and we say, but he only looks 40, we, we compliment. When someone looks younger than they are, we think of it as a good thing. We too, like this man in the dirt, crave. We hope for youthful vitality. This man is not only wealthy, he is young, but he's in the dirt begging Jesus for life. We third learn that he is powerful. He is a ruler. He has achieved political success in his profession, perhaps in the politics of the day. His political party is in control. And if we admit our condition this morning, isn't it true that we look for power in our own places of school and work and oh, the fights we have that our political party might be in power even in our own country. No matter the perspective, we fight. The man is politically powerful, and yet he's in the dirt begging Jesus for life. The last quality we find about him, he is exceptionally religious. He is right. He's on the right side of all of the questions. He is religiously significant. He has that piece of his life all together. And if we're admitting the truth today, isn't it true that as religious people, we wanna be in the right church, teaching the right thing. We wanna be on the right side of all the issues. The man is religiously right, but he finds himself in the dirt begging Jesus for life. He has the four major categories of what we cling to. Check, 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 check. He's on solid ground, or so he thinks, but yet his life is falling apart. And he comes to Jesus and says, won't you open up heaven and give me life? And Jesus says, come, follow me. 
In fact, the text says that Jesus looks at the man and, quote, he loves him. Jesus has affection for him. He is sorry for the man. His heart goes out to him. Come, yes, follow me. I am the good teacher. But, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me and find new life, we've got to do some business with your current life. Jesus says there's some things that we're going to have to clean up. So here goes. Jesus says to him, sell everything. Sell it all and follow me. All of the wealth and all of the youth and all of the power and all of the religious correctness, all of it, you've got to sell it and then follow me. You see, friends, you can't take those four and just add following Jesus as a fifth. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says to the man, you've got to deal with these four, then follow me and you will find life. You have got to sell it all. What might this look like for us? Uh, Selling it all in terms of a material world. Many, many years ago, uh, my wife and I, dual income, no kids, we bought a a big 4,500 square foot house. We thought that was the answer. All of our friends were doing it moved into the house and discovered we couldn't afford to furnish the house. Uh, We didn't have money or time to put stuff on the walls. It was just a big echo chamber that took hours to clean every week. We were like, this is not life. This is not okay. And so we sold the house, lost money, moved into a little 900 square foot bungalow And we look back at that period of life, those years, is some of the sweetest moments in our marriage. Quickly furnished it, put stuff on the walls. It was like 37 minutes it took us to clean that house every week, like wall to wall. It was awesome. We had free time. We had space. What does it mean for you? to downsize your material world. Not some other story, not some other person, a different point in your life, not some time in the future, but what would it look like to take Jesus seriously and sell it all, to have an attitude of downsizing your dependence upon your worship of materialism in your life? What would that look like? Jesus says it's freeing. What does it mean to downsize our affection for youth? Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopalian priest, one of my favorite preachers. She writes that we should have a regular spiritual discipline when we're all alone at home to walk in front of a full-length mirror, not the kind that changes the shape of your body, not including lights that make you look better, but that we should all by ourselves stand completely naked in front of a mirror and learn to love our bodies. To learn to love ourselves for who we are. Absent makeup and absent the lighting and absent the clothes that make us look younger. Oh, how refreshing. And then a a second discipline, how good it is to be among those kinds of friends that love us just the way we are, you know them. We don't have to put on the mask. We don't have to feign our age. 
We don't have to cover up the weaknesses of our body, those things that we would like to change, those people that help us gain the victory over an addiction to youth. And what about celebrating birthdays more? You know, the other half of the globe gets this right. The Eastern world, they love wrinkles. They love their old people. But somehow in the Western world, we're not so sure. I think that we need to learn to love our wrinkles, to love those who are older, to live into these bodies. After all, friends, if we're going to live forever, what difference does it make anyway? One day there'll be a new body. One day it'll all be changed. To downsize our attitude in the matters of our worship of usefulness. And then what about power? Oh, I think downsizing power in our workplaces, not caring about uh, this uh, professional designation or that one, who's here and who's second and who's third in the workplace, but looking at ourselves as people. One thing I love about Crosswalk, this is a place where no one's touting that they're an MD or a DDS or a PhD. We come to church with our first names only as brothers and sisters. That's what we are. No professional accomplishments, no, no power on display. And then what about our thirst for political power? Uh, let me just say that I think that this is something we have to come to grips with as Christians in America. Somehow we think that if we just gain political power, if our party, if our viewpoint has the majority, then everything will be well. But I have to tell you, in two and a half decades of pastoring people on both sides of the political aisle, people that are unhappy when their political party or political position is out of power, those people are just as unhappy when their politics is in power. Nothing changes. Oh, they gloat a little bit more. They're a little bit more prideful. But when you look into their soul, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. What would it be like for us to just say, we're going to downsize. We're going to sell off our interest in relying on power to be the solution to our lives. And then what about our religion? That final component, what does it mean to downsize? I, I wonder sometimes if Jesus didn't uh, utilize his parable that we find in Mark 4 in his ongoing conversation with this man. Jesus uh, says um, uh, to us, to religious people, he begins to step on our toes. He, he says, the kingdom of God works like this. A farmer goes out and plants a seed. And that seed grows whether the man sleeps or wakes up. Whether the guy stays in bed or goes and works really hard. Guess what? The kingdom of heaven grows whether you and I are productive or not. It's God's business. Whether this generation works really, really hard to accomplish something or doesn't, guess what? The kingdom of heaven does its thing whether we sleep or whether we wake up. Jesus says in the parable, in fact, the man, quote, doesn't know how the seed grows. 
In American Christianity, where all of us, we want to be in the right church and know the right doctrine and know as much as we can. And we want, we want to know how everything plays out and we want to know prophecy. We want to know a lot. Jesus says, oh, by the way, what you know and don't know has nothing to do with how I'm progressing the, pink, the kingdom of God. Your knowledge means nothing. And then as if to really stick the knife into us and to really make us feel humble, Jesus says, quote, the dirt all by itself grows the seed. In other words, you don't know dirt. And dirt does things that you can't do. It's almost as if it's a compliment uh, to dirt. We, uh, we've come from dirt and to dirt we go. It's almost as if that one day if we return to dirt, we will do something for God that we currently don't do right now. Right? And dirt comes from the same word humus, humility. Jesus is saying, I don't care how hard you work how productive you are, church. I don't care how much knowledge you got in your doctrinal bank. The dirt. The dirt will take care of things. Don't be so boastful. Why don't you downsize your religious hubris a little bit? Jesus says to the man, you got to downsize. Jesus looks at this soul. His heart is breaking apart. Oh, Jesus, I want to find life. Jesus says, follow me. But if you're going to follow me, you've got to clean up some of these things because you can't be committed to those four and just add following Jesus as a fifth. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, if I might say so, we come into churches and we sing about following Jesus and we pray about following Jesus and we preach about following Jesus, but we're not so sure that we actually are going to relinquish those other things. And the problem is following Jesus does not bring life if I'm still following wealth and youth and power and religious arrogance. It can't be just one more thing. Jesus says to the man, if you want to find life, and he says to us today, if you want to find that abundant life, clean the barn out. And follow me. But it isn't just a selfish exercise. Yes, there's benefit in downsizing in all these areas. Freedom comes. But it's not just some uh, uh, self-centered, navel-gazing reflection. Jesus then says, sell everything you have and be generous. Sell it all and give to the poor. Reorient your whole way of thinking and start blessing the socks off other people and you will be on the track to finding the life of your dreams. Maybe some of you saw this a couple of weeks ago. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, do you know this name? Uh, The all-time leading scorer in NBA history, Hall of Famer in basketball, multiple championships, multiple uh, Most Valuable Players Award, a distinguished uh, intellect in his retirement from basketball, a businessman, a deep thinker, a humanitarian, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. A couple weeks ago, I'm reading, uh, it says that he is selling his trophies, his championship rings, a lot of his memorabilia. He's selling it And he's going to give the money to uh, inner city kids, to programs that bless them and benefit them. Um, Sometimes when you read about athletes selling uh, their stuff, you think that they've gone bankrupt or something bad. Well, that's not the case here. He's actually 
going to invest this in something else. But what caught my attention was reading his interview. And I want, to notice, I want you to notice what Kareem says. When it comes to choosing between storing a championship ring or trophy in a room or providing kids with an opportunity to change their lives, the choice is pretty simple. Sell it all. Sell it all. It's the gospel language. He says, sell it all. And then he continues, looking back at what I've done with my life, instead of gazing at the sparkle of jewels or gold plating celebrating something that I did a long time ago, I'd rather look into the lighted face of a child holding their first caterpillar and think about what I might be doing for their future. Kareem says, sell it all. Jesus says, sell it all not just for the sake of selling it and kind of decluttering your life, but that you might be freed up for an orientation towards blessing others. I'm a little embarrassed and, and feel awkward in telling you the story I'm about to tell because it's about me. It'll make me feel better at least if I give you some context. So what you have to understand about me is I'm inherently a selfish person. And I'm not proud about that, but it's my default too often. And my wife is an inherently, instinctively unselfish person. So when we're driving down the road, every single time that she sees a car broken down, somebody changing a tire, uh, the hood is up, there's some problem, the car is disabled or off the road in some way, every single time she says, Alex, I think we need to stop. I think we need to help them. Um, look, uh, he's old, he's young, he's middle-aged, he, he's, he's this, he's that. It doesn't matter. We got to stop, right? And my instinct every single time is to come up with a reason why this is the wrong time to stop. It's dark out, it's light out, it's raining, it's sunny, it's hot, it's cold. We got places we need to go. The kids are in the back. It's not safe. It's not convenient. I'm sure somebody else is coming to help them. I'm just saying this to admit to you that I struggle with that. That is not my first impulse. So, having said that, a couple of weeks ago, I have our big, beautiful Suburban in the mechanics shop for a second time because they put brand new brakes on incorrectly. I'm frustrated. I'm back here a second time. This should not have happened. They gave me the runaround. They kept changing the time when it was going to be finished. I, I arrived to the place earlier than I should have. Oh, Mr. Bryan, it's going to be longer. It's going to be... So I'm sitting there. I am not happy about this. I'm grumpy. I'm pacing back and forth. Maybe I'm the only one in this room, but I'm like, I'm looking through that glass into the actual mechanic area, staring, just will, wanting to will the car to come down off the rack, right? Get the tires on. Let's get out of here. Um, so I'm not happy. I'm not in a good place. Pacing back and forth, I start to overhear a conversation. This older woman is at the counter and she's in dialogue with the clerk. 
She has just brought in her broken down car. One of her tires blew out on the road. Uh, The car itself probably was worth about the price of the brake job on my Suburban. And the woman is explaining to her, uh, the clerk, that she needs to get four new tires because it's not safe. And the woman's having a hard time processing all this, but the conversation goes on. So finally, uh, this older woman is on the phone with her bank because she doesn't have the money. And she's talking about it in advance or getting a loan or she gets her social security check in, in seven or eight days. So this conversation is going on. Then she places a phone call to her adult children. One call doesn't seem to go very well. Second call sounded like maybe $75 was pledged or something. But this goes on for like 30 minutes. and I'm just sitting there listening to it. Finally, the clerk says to her, well, you need to come back in the morning uh, and get four new tires because that's the only way your car is going to be safe. And the woman said, well, I got to see if I can get the money together. The old woman walks out uh, of of the shop. And then I quietly, privately make my way over and have a conversation with the clerk. Which was not my instinct. which is not my natural impulse. It's not the kind of thing I easily do. But a few moments later, when my car was done, I walked out of that place and I have never felt so good. I have never been so happy leaving a mechanic as I was that day. Everything had changed because of that conversation. You see, when Jesus says to us, downsize it all because you can be generous, this isn't about being religious or being spiritual. It's about the secret to how life actually works, how joy actually is discovered. When we move from selfishness, selfishness to generosity, when we shift to having a heart for the other, everything changes. When we make the stop on the side of the road, when we have the private conversation that says we will solve the problem, when we do this, everything changes. The man comes to Jesus with the question of the ages. Oh, how can I have life? Oh, that you would part the heavens and come down. But Jesus was there. It was no longer a future hope. Jesus was there. And friends, while we do hope for Jesus one day, Jesus is here. He's already here. He already came. The heavens were already ripped apart. God already came down. By his spirit, he is here. And he says to us, if you'll follow me, clear the barn of all of these other things that you chase that don't lead to life. Lighten your load. And then walk with me in generosity to others. I'm here. I'm king. I'm Lord. Let's go now. Let's have life now. How about that? Oh, yeah, Satan. That dog was barreling down on me. 
jowls were flapping, saliva coming out of his mouth, teeth bare. He was ready for a meal, and I was it. Foot away from me, all of a sudden, Satan comes to a screeching halt. His neck whips back. It's like somebody had slammed the brakes on him. I look down, and I see it. Satan's on a leash. (laughs) And he can only go that far. Satan's on a leash. Death is on a leash. The monsters of this world on a leash. For Jesus has come. The heavens have been opened. And life has been gifted to us. May we grab that life. May we have that life. Not tomorrow or someday in the future. Right now. Today. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of love. Who comes to us in our great cry and teaches us how to have life, how to push aside those things that only take life from us, how to embrace those those activities, those works, those impulses that provide life for us. And Jesus who comes, and by his death on a cross, by the power of his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his authority on the throne today, by all of this, the giver of hope, the giver of life, the one we now worship once again. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.